Let's open our Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 4. As we um, get into Luke's Gospel, Luke is responsible for writing both Luke and the book of Acts, and he ties um, them both together. And um, let's go to where Joshua left off in the middle of chapter 4. He left off verse 13, so let's Pick it up, Luke chapter 4, from 14 to 21. After 40 days of being tempted by the devil, um, we read, Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out throughout all the surrounding region. And he taught in their synagogues, and he was glorified by all. Now, as he comes to Nazareth, we're going to see a complete turnabout as far as being glorified by all to where by the time we get to the end of this chapter or towards the end, they want to actually kill him and throw him off a cliff. It says in verse 16, so he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. Uh, Nazareth is a, a beautiful um, city. Um, you have um, uh, where the Valley of, of Armageddon, the Battle of Armageddon will someday be fought directly. If you're looking from Nazareth towards the Mediterranean, you would actually end up in Megiddo. So it always intrigued me that the Lord, growing up his whole life, was actually looking over a place that he would someday return and engage in battle at the Battle of Armageddon, and he would actually look at it on a daily basis. So this was his home, hometown. He had his home synagogue that he went to. And it says he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. So he just didn't, you know, just open it up. He actually went to a particular uh, chapter, which is chapter 61. <clears throat> and we read where he read, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to preach deliverance to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Um, let's just stop right here and go to Isaiah chapter 61. Give me a, a moment to get there. Isaiah probably has more to say about um, the life of, of Christ than any of the other prophets. It speaks a lot about his birth. Um, in chapter 61, it proclaims what he will do during his ministry. So let's pick it up in verse one, where he quotes, remember he's in his hometown now, and he quotes this place that he looked for, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, 
to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. I personally believe this is a reference to when uh, Jesus died. It says, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. When he was dying on the cross, the one, the thief that believed on him said, Lord, remember me when you enter your kingdom. And he said, today, you're gonna be with me in paradise. Well, we know that he was in the center of the earth for three days, and if the thief on the cross was gonna be with him in paradise that day, then paradise could not be heaven. Paradise is actually a place, according to Luke chapter 16, that's um, called Abraham's bosom. And we have a man named Lazarus who died and was carried to the angels to this place called Abraham's bosom. And then we have a rich man who died and he, it just says, went to hell. And maybe he thought it was all over. When it's over, it's over. You live your life and then there's nothing else. A lot of people actually think that way. And nothing could be farther from the truth. When a person dies, his flesh will perish, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. But you have a soul, you have a spirit, and it is eternal. And he had a body, that, that the rich man who died, but he found himself in torment. He talks about his tongue and being thirsty. And he actually could see Abraham and Lazarus, the one who had just died. And he said, would you send Lazarus over here with water because I am tormented in these flames? And Abraham basically said, sorry, we can't do it. There's something that's fixed between these two chambers, one of torture and torment and flame, and the other of comfort. So when I read here about setting the captives free, we read in Ephesians chapter four that before he ascended, he first descended into the lower parts of the earth and he led captivity captive. I believe that ties into this verse here. Um, The opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim liberty to the captives. Hebrews tells us that the Old Testament saints, they all died in faith, but they hadn't received the promise. They couldn't go to heaven. So we find a very interesting verse in Matthew 27, verse 52, if you're taking notes. It says that when Jesus arose first, and it it qualifies that, it says first Jesus rose, but then it says many of the graves in Jerusalem were open, and then the people went and appeared to many. Now to me, this is one of the weirdest verses in the entire Bible. Well, where did they come from? Well, he was setting the captives free. They couldn't go to heaven because Jesus had not yet died on the cross. So what was his first order of business? Well, it's prophesied here. One of the things he would do, he's gonna heal the poor. He's gonna preach good tidings to the poor, heal up the broken hearted. But then he's gonna perform this act of all those Old Testament saints that died in faith. There no longer exists this chamber. I believe this chamber is empty. And uh, that's when uh, they went, the graves were opened, and clearly tells us in Matthew 27, verse 52. And um, 
that had to be weird, having one of your dead relatives come and have a conversation with you. <laughs> People ask me about that today. Um, this is the only place I find that it's biblical, okay? And it could only have happened here because these people were waiting for the promise. So, uh, anachronism and talking to the dead and on all of that sort of stuff is clearly forbidden in scripture according to Deuteronomy chapter 18. So if you find friends or family members saying that they're talking to other family members or they're seeing other family members, you're not dealing with relation, you're dealing with demons. And we're told clearly, hands off, you don't go there. Um, we could talk much about that. I'm going to just leave it there because I'm going to actually dwell on this here just a little bit. So let's go on a little bit farther. To proclaim, um, set the captives that are in prison free to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, comma. But that's all the farther the Lord goes. The rest of the sentence is, and the day of vengeance of our God. Again, I want to point out, you can't teach chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the Bible without dealing with Bible prophecy. Good place for an amen. <laughs> and so here we are, we're, we're reading the first couple verses of our, our study tonight. And now let's go back to Luke chapter four. And uh, notice that in verse 19, the Lord says to preach the acceptable year of the Lord, but then he closes the book. He doesn't finish the sentence. Why? Because the next verse, part B of uh, that prophecy, is the, and the day of vengeance of our God. That's talking about the tribulation period. That's still yet future. So again, we want to get used to the fact that um, the Old Testament is connected with the new, uh, here's one of the major ones right here. And the Lord purposely turned to Isaiah 61 and he was preaching up to this point because he said to them in verse 21, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. But my point is that he stopped at a comma and we need to get used to that. Um, Zechariah uh, chapter Zephaniah, Zechariah, chapter nine, verse nine, talks about the Lord. Your king comes to you lowly and he's riding on a colt of a fold. And that, of course, is, we're gonna be talking about that in a couple of weeks because Palm Sunday is right around the corner. And um, in the very next verse, that's verse nine, but in verse 10, it says, and the same guy that's riding the little donkey uh, who's your king, in verse 10 it says, in his kingdom, he will rule from sea to sea. Well, that is yet future. That's talking about the kingdom. But again, my point is what we want to be sensitive to is that from one verse to the next, in this case, from one half of a sentence to the second half of the seconds, we have a gap of time. When Jesus closed the book and said this is fulfilled this day, well, that much was being fulfilled that day. But not uh, he had to close it because the next part of it is and the day of vengeance of our God. When the Lord will deal with this world that <laughs> is getting increasingly darker day by day by day. 
So, verse 22, all bore witness to him and marveled at his gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, isn't this Joseph's son? And he said to them, "Uh, you will surely say this proverb to be physician, heal yourself. Whatever, Whatever we have done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, assuredly I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. Now, several weeks ago, um, we did a, a study called A Prophet Without Honor. And the whole point of that Bible study is if the Lord is going to be rejected in his own hometown, um, then how much more are you gonna be rejected in your own hometown or by your own family members? You see, they think they know you because they grew up with you. Um, They know your strong points, they know your weak points, and now the Lord is coming out and declaring that he's the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 61. And those around him are saying, you're Joseph's kid, who in the world do you think you are? And they're offended. Um, Let's just stop there and turn to 1 John chapter 3, picking up verse 13. He says, do not marvel, my brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren, and he who does not love his brother abides in death. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought also to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now let's just stop there. First of all, he says, don't be all shook up and hung up and surprised if the people who know you best uh, don't respect the fact that you say, look, I'm a different person. I've been born again by the Spirit of God, and I'm not who I was. Old things have passed away, and the Lord in his time is making all things new. Well, that can be offensive to them because to them it might be looking at, you think you're better than I am. That's what you're saying to me right now. But I know you. You're no better than me. And when they say that, we can agree with them, you're absolutely right. (laughs) I am no better than you. But at the same time, they can't see the transformation that God has done on the inside. So I'm afraid um, the church is gravitating more and more. When I say the church, I mean the church at large. On... My question is, who's doing the conforming here? And is the church conforming the world, or is the world conforming the church? And if you remember Romans chapter 12, it said, don't be conformed by this world, but be transformed. How do you get transformed? By the renewing of your mind. How do you renew your mind? By doing exactly what you're doing tonight being reminded again, once and again, at a Wednesday night Bible study, that the world could very well possibly hate me and you're in good company. Because Jesus said a prophet is not without honor, in his, except in his own, when, he, when he's in his own town. So we're not to marvel at that, we're actually to expect that as, as part of being a Christian. 
Verse 17 is important. Um, This doesn't save us, but it proves that we are saved. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and truth. And by this we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. Back to Luke. Word of encouragement for those that are having family issues. Uh, If for no other reason that you've taken a stand... Uh, and, and, and these days, the days that we're getting into to take a stand biblically um, is becoming more and more a political issue because of um, the laws that are being passed, uh, especially when it gets into sexual gender and taking a stand. Um, I'd, I'd be honest with you, I don't remember the, the commercial, but uh, Judy said, well, he's obviously a Christian because they're painting him as being a bigot and he's taking a stand for sexual purity and he's taking a stand and saying that um, homosexuality is actually a sin. And um, they're saying all kinds of hate things about this guy. Well, he's a hate monger and so on and so forth. As time goes on, this is gonna become more and more an issue. And my question is, are you gonna take a stand and say, this is a no-brainer. This is not a gray area in any way, shape, or form. Romans chapter one clearly lays it out, that this is an abomination before the Lord. And the most loving thing that you could do, uh, as we just read back in in John, um, if you see your brother has a need, well, I think there it's referring to a physical need. And if, if it's within your power to help this person out financially, whatever, and you don't do it, then how does God dwell in you? Because that would be the natural response uh, for a Christian to do. But if you take it into the political arena and now stand on moral issues, yeah, the world will hate you. Probably another good place for an amen. But that's, that's what the church is buckling under today. Um, many of it, for the sake of size or whatever, um, will compromise this book um, and allow the world to do a lot of the conforming. I think it's just as bad to say nothing. A lot of churches will just avoid the issue completely. Uh, to me, that's just as bad. One of the safeguards that, that we really do have, gang, here at, at Calvary, and um, what Pastor Chuck laid down, a simple principle, just teach the Bible, just simply teach the Bible, simply but do all of it. Don't get to Romans and say, well, we're going to skip chapter one because, boy, that's a negative chapter. Let's go right on to chapter two or three. But when you deal with the full volume of Scripture, the whole council of Scripture, when, when Paul left the earth, he says, I can leave in peace because while I was here, my job was to proclaim the whole council of God. And that begins as Genesis 1 and it ends in Revelation 22 and that's another good place for an amen. All right, okay, now I can keep going. Then he said um, in verse 24, Assuredly I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But 
I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. Now notice that here. And there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. I'm going to spend a little time on this one tonight because we read through it. But a lot of us have never really heard the story or connected the dots with Elijah. And again, the connecting of the old and the new. So I'm going to have you turn to the story of 1 Kings chapter 17. So let's make our way back to 1 Kings chapter 17. We have the prophecy of the drought. And we read in verse 1 that Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab, now this is Ahab that married Jezebel, he says, as the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be no dew nor rain these years except at my word. Now here, um, it doesn't tell us uh, in the verse, verse just how long this is not gonna rain, but we'll, we'll come to that. Let's read the story. Then the, we'll read up to um, verse 16. Then the word of the Lord came to me again saying, get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And it will be that you shall drink from the brook and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord for he went and stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening and he drank from the brook. But it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him again, saying, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow, and this is what we're reading in Luke, that uh, there were many widows in Israel, but the Lord sent Elijah to this one in Sidon, in Zarephath, uh, go to a widow there to, and she will provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And we came to the gates of the city. Indeed, there was a widow who was gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called and he said, uh, by the way, please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And then she said, "Ah, as the Lord your God lives, I don't have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I might go in and prepare it for myself and my son. We'll eat it, and then we're gonna die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as uh, as you have said, but make me a small cake first and bring it to me and afterwards make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God, now he's prophesying. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall a jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and he and her Household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word 
of the Lord which he had spoken by Elijah. Let's get sidetracked on Elijah a little bit. First of all, remember on Sunday, um, we mentioned we were talking about our adversary, the ongoing war against Israel from Genesis all the way to Revelation. And when we got to Revelation chapter 12, it says that Satan was kicked out of heaven and he knew he had a short time. And that short time, it tells us, was times, times, and half a times, or three and a half years. And it says he went to make war with the woman, but the Lord helped the woman and he opened up the earth. And I think I made the comment something like this, going, come on, give me a break. You're telling me that the earth is gonna open up and swallow up whatever this flood is, probably an army. And I said, absolutely yes. But the reason I say absolutely yes is because it's happened before. It happened when Korah rebelled against Moses and he was dividing the whole camp. Basically, Korah was saying, Moses, who in the world do you think you are anyway? There's more than one leader on here. Korah was referring to himself, of course. And Moses goes and falls on his face before the Lord and says, what do you want me to do? He says, well, tell Korah and his buddies to go and stand on this side over here by his tent, and I want you to stand over this side, and uh, we'll talk about it in the morning. So Moses gets up in the morning and says, okay, everybody, if, if, the, if the Lord is with me and not with Korah, then let the earth open up and devour Korah and all who are with him. What happened? The earth opened up and devoured Korah and all who were with him. So what, do I have a problem with Revelation 12? This is happening in the Old Testament? I truly believe the Holy Spirit allows things to happen twice. So that when we read a scripture like that in Revelation chapter 12, where it says the earth opened up, right away my brain goes back to Korah. This has happened before. All right, here, Elijah said, look, it's not gonna rain till I say so. And let's make our way to the book of, um, just make our way through, let's go to the very last book of the Old Testament, uh, Malachi, chapter four. And we're talking about Elijah again. Now these, these are the last words of the Old Testament, literally, the last words of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter four, verse five. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So right before this great uh, tribulation tribulation period, I believe immediately after the church is, is taken out, the world goes into chaos, The Antichrist is revealed. We have in Revelation 7, um, the marking of uh, 144,000 Jehovah Witnesses, as you all know. No, there's a reason it says 12,000 from the tribe of Ephraim, Zephalon, and it just goes through the whole list of tribes. Why, why go go to the lake? Because they're Jews. 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. 12 times the 12,000 is 144,000. But in verse five, along with them, 
is going to arise, the two witnesses prophesied in Revelation chapter 11. And I'm gonna take you there again because I want you to connect the dots between the old and the new. Here's the last thing the Old Testament says. Right before the great tribulation begins, he calls it here the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Revelation 6.17 calls it the wrath of the Lamb. So while that's happening, there's another whole thing going on because Elijah is there with Moses. Well, Dwight, how do you know that it's Moses? Well, because it was Moses and Elijah that happened to appear in the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was glorified. That's one of the reasons. And the other reason is because of the miracles that were, were being done. So I'm pointing this out here. Let's, I'm make, making my way to Revelation, but let's stop in James chapter five and do a practical study on the importance, two things that I see that are really important in Revelation, uh, James chapter five, verses um, 17 and 18. The first thing I wanna point out is Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. I want you to think about that. The Lord chooses to use the simple things and the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He's not necessarily looking for a theologian with a lot of degrees behind his name uh, because the Bible tells us wisdom puffs up. You can get a big head. And I've seen that happen to people. Here, Elijah was just a natural man, just like you, just like me. But he prayed earnestly that it would not rain And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. Jesus tells us the same thing. Now we have the times and times and half a times. So this tells me, now turn to Revelation chapter 11. And we actually are introduced to these two witnesses in verse three. I will give power to my two witnesses. They will prophesy for 1,260 days. Well, how long is 1,260 days? Exactly three and a half years. And so the tribulation period is a seven year period of time cut in half. So the first three and a half years, um, this is a prophecy also, if you're taking notes, verse four, these are the two olive trees, the two lampstands standing before the God of the whole earth. For extra credit, and you really wanna dive into this, write down Zechariah chapter four, and read about the prophecies of the two lampstands and the two olive branches because they're fulfilling that prophecy. If anybody wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth to devour their enemies, and if anybody wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. They will have power to shut heaven so that it doesn't rain in the days of their prophecy. Well, what was the days of their prophecy? 1,260 days, how long is that? Three and a half years. How long was it with King Ahab? What did James tell us? Uh, Elijah's just an average Joe, just like you, just like me. He got hungry, he got thirsty. The Lord provided, provided for him. But once again, let's connect the dots. So, read, uh, in the days of the prophecies, no rain fell, but they had power to turn uh, the water to blood. Well, that sure sounds like Moses to me. And to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desired when their 
finish their testimonies, the beast that ascended out of the bottomless pit will make war against them and kill them. We're gonna find this to be true when they wanna kill Jesus at, at, as we get to the end of chapter four. They're gonna to wanna to kill him. But he can't be killed because it's not his time. Nobody could kill Moses and Elijah until their time was up. Nobody could touch him, hurt them for 1,260 days. Go back to Revelation chapter seven and, and, um, and as I think this through, this would be at, at the beginning part of this um, seven year period of time. Actually it begins in chapter six. But the first part of chapter, first couple of verses of chapter seven are interesting to me. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth so that the wind should not blow on the earth or on the sea or any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. What happens when there's no wind? Well, obviously, you don't have uh, the weather cycle. We all watch the news tonight. We know that the winds are going to be coming out of the west or the east to tell us uh, uh, how fast they're going to be going and so on and so forth. What if the weather report every day for three and a half years is, well, there's no wind today, just like yesterday, just like has been for the last three years now, no wind, no weather cycle, no rain. So this, to me, makes perfect sense. I thought I would just get a little sidetracked with this one, let's go back to Luke 4. And remember, this all started with uh, um, this widow that, uh, again, verse 25, I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and it was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. So what do we have? Um, This being fulfilled here as he's talking about it. We go to Malachi, the last couple of verses of the Old Testament saying, I'm gonna send Elijah right before the great tribulation. And um, then we go to Revelation 11. It tells us the duration of their ministry. And when they're, and when the Lord is done using them, then they get to go home. Now, I personally think that's true for you and me. I think what it says, it's been appointed unto man once to die, and then a judgment. I don't know when my day is, but guess who does? The Lord does. Uh, We all have an appointment. I hope my appointment is with the rapture, personally. (laughs) Or... Um, Lord, if you're going to take me home, just do it quick. <laughs> and, um, but the good news is, Second Corinthians 5, we know that when this earthly tent is destroyed, that we have a home not made with hands. It's eternal in the heavens. And in this, we do earnestly groan. So, you know, I flipped another year yesterday and my body is in complete sync with that fact. It is reminding me again, yes, you certainly did. Flip the page and you're another year, you're older. So let's go on and finish this chapter. 
Um, actually, when we did this study, I spent, um, <clears throat> I didn't spend the time in Zarephath with the widow, but I did talk about the leper, <clears throat> Naaman. Verse 27, <clears throat> excuse me. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha. Notice we just went from Elijah to Elisha, the prophet. And none of them were cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Now we did this on a Sunday morning and we went back and told that whole story. Now, after hearing all this, those in a synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath. When we get to the Gospel of John, I'm gonna point out uh, five reasons why the religious establishment wanted to kill Jesus. And this is one of them here. First of all, he's claiming to be the prophet, spoke about in Isaiah 61. And um, now they're going to rise up and they want to kill him and throw him off this hill. And John tells us that one of the reasons that they hated him is because they feared their position. In other words, they were being trumped. The people respected the scribes and the Pharisees and the priests. And now all this attention, everybody's looking at Jesus and quite frankly, they don't like it. So they're filled with wrath and rose up to thrust him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill on which the city was built and they, that they might throw him over the cliff. There is a cliff that we go to, we call it the, the precipice. We have a Bible study there and we use that as a backdrop, one of my favorite places because you can see the whole valley that goes all the way down to Jerusalem, from Mount Carmel to Megiddo, and it goes all the way down. But then passing through the midst of them, he simply went his way. It doesn't give us a lot of information there, um, except to say this, it wasn't his time. Um, they couldn't have killed Jesus at this time if they wanted to. His hour had not yet come. Again, when we get to the Gospel of John, seven times that's going to be stated. I should say six. Six times it says, my hour has not yet come. Nobody could do anything. The seventh time he says it, he says, my hour has come. And this was the last night during the Last Supper. He says, well, it's here. My hour has finally come. Verse 31 to 37. Then he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching and his words with authority. Now in a synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice saying, let us alone. Notice it's in the plural. Uh, There's more than one demon in this man. By the way, where is he? He's in the synagogue. We'd say in church. He says, what have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know you, who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him in their midst, it came out of him and did not hurt him. So they were all amazed and they spoke amongst themselves saying, 
What a word is this? For with authority and with power he commands the unclean spirits and they come out and the report about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. One of the things that hits me here is that the average person who was in a synagogue was very aware that there was a demonic realm. He even commands demons. Well, they're aware of demons. And uh, he has the authority to command them to come out at his word. And uh, they were astonished by this. From this verse through the rest of the chapter, we have one day with, with the Lord. Um, would have liked to have been in any one of these days. Um, both Matthew and Mark record the fact that the Lord Jesus moved his headquarters from his hometown of Nazareth to Capernaum. Capernaum uh, is on the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee, uh, sort of about Waverly Beach area, and that would be where Capernaum would be. Um, and that would have been on the Sea of Galilee. He he did this because the people from his own town would not receive him. And there came a day when he told the people of Capernaum, that was his head, headquarters. And that's where Simon Peter lived. We'll be reading about that in a second. But later on, he's gonna say, Capernaum, which is exalted to heaven, shall be thrust down to hell. That's Luke chapter 10, verse 15. Because his headquarters was there, there was an opportunity they had. Light creates responsibility. The Lord's headquarters was in Capernaum. He was always traveling around, but always coming back to Capernaum. And many in Capernaum did not believe on him, even though they had seen many mighty miracles. So um, I think, you know, I've... um, Never seen the Lord. I can't say I've seen the Lord. Um, I can say I've heard his voice audibly one time, but that's one time in my many years of ministry. I do know his still small voice. I do know I don't want to get up to speak unless he has given me the Bible study. I don't want to stand up here and say, well, this is what I came up with. (laughs) No, I want to say like Paul. That which I receive from the Lord, I want to give to you. And sometimes I get nervous because it's late in the week and and the Lord still hasn't told me what Sunday's message is about. But don't worry, he already told me what Sunday's message is going to be about yesterday. So I'm I'm smooth sailing. (laughs) Sometimes it doesn't come till later. You want to know what it's about? That's too bad, you have to wait and see. (laughs) All right, let's finish up here. Um, I'm amazed that um, the people were aware of the demonic realm. In verses 38 and 39, he arose from the synagogue and entered Simon's house, this would be Peter, and Simon's wife's mother was sick. Well, that tells us that Peter was married. It doesn't have a lot to say about the disciples or their wives. All I know is that she's never mentioned again, and that to me raises more questions than it gives, gives me answers. And they made request of him concerning her. So he stood over her and rebuked the fever. 
And it left her and immediately she arose and served them. She was instantly healed and felt good enough to cook supper for everybody that was there. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had anyone sick with various diseases brought them to him. He laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many crying out saying, you are the Christ, the son of God. And he rebuked them and did not allow them to speak for they knew that he was the Christ. Have you ever heard somebody that's not born again say, well, I believe in God. Well, I believe in Jesus. Well, guess what? So do the demons. They know he's the Christ. They believe he's the son of God. Does that mean they're going to heaven? Absolutely not. They're not going to heaven. The Lord clearly says that the hell was created for the devil and his angels. They are eternal beings also. And one third of them make up the demonic realm. And just a little sidetrack on what I just said. Turn to Jude, verses five and six. Jude is the little book, one chapter long, before the book of Revelation. I'll give you a, a moment to get there. Verse five, Jude says, I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain. Demons are fallen angels. They left their proper domain. Their own habitation. He has reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of that great day. Well, not all of them. We know through Daniel that there are different powers and principalities. There's different authorities. There's seraphim. There's cherubim. There's angels. There's archangels. And uh, Lucifer was the top of the pile, uh, the most beautiful and the one with the most wisdom. He caused the rebellion. And he somehow persuaded one-third of the multitude of how many millions and millions of angels there are, he somehow persuaded one-third of them to be a part of this rebellion. And so some of them are so fierce This could mean one or two things in verse six. These fallen angels are reserved in everlasting chains. Remember Revelation 20? It says when the Lord finally does lay hold of Satan at the end of the battle of Armageddon, he does not throw him into the lake of fire for at least a thousand years. It says he chained him in this, uh, in hell. So, This could mean that during the great tribulation period, again, one of the strangest chapters that is there is Revelation chapter nine, where it talks about an angel coming down from heaven having a key to the bottomless pit. And when this pit is opened, demons come out. And they have the power, it says, to hurt men but not to kill men. Uh, They're sting will be like a scorpion sting. It'll be extremely painful to the point where people are gonna wanna check out because of the, the pain, but the Lord will not allow the spirit to leave the body. This goes on for five months. So this could have a reference um, reserved in judgment for that great day. It could mean uh, Revelation chapter nine when they're released. Um, 
and I just thought I would allude to it because obviously as we study, let's make our way back to Luke, much of Jesus' ministry, matter of fact, as much as one-third, was casting demons out of people. These aren't reserved in everlasting chains. They have access. The ones that he cast out of the man in the the land of the Gadarenes, um, they pleaded with him, don't send us to this place. They called the Abuso or the Abyss. Don't send us there. Let us go into the swine instead. And he allowed it. So what are we learning? Well, there's some demons that the Lord will not allow to be on earth because of uh, just how bad they are, just how much damage they could cause. But some clearly here, probably of lesser prominence and power and authority, um, uh, he has complete control over. Let's see how far we can get through. Well, let's finish chapter four first. And uh, pick it up verse 40. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had anyone sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on them and healed them. And demons, did I read this? Okay, I thought I did, I wasn't sure. Let's go to chapter five, see how far we get with that. Chapter five, verses one through 11, the calling of the disciples. So it was as as the multitudes pressed about him to hear the word of God, what that must have been like. Um, Just wanting to get close to the Lord to hear him. But he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. This is another name for the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and they were washing their nets. And because of the crowds, he got into one of the boats which was Simon's, and he asked him to go out just a little bit, and he sat down, and he taught the multitudes from the boat. Now, um, I watched religious broadcasting, but not for very long. It's a very, very quick click. (laughs) And down in the Phoenix area, there's a lot of them. And I'll tell you, they're prancing the stage, and they're jumping up and down, and they're... um, uh, I don't know what to call them except motivational speakers. They're there to pump you up. They're there to make, the th- make you think it's all about you, how you can have your best life now or whatever. And, um, and a lot of these churches are thriving and um, have a lot of numbers. Contrast that to what we just read. Jesus said, uh, Peter, come here, I need your boat. Uh, and he sits down relaxed position, and he began to teach. Nothing flashy, simply teaching the word of God, simply. That's the way the Lord did it. He wasn't a showman. I suppose it would be pretty showy if you're casting a demon out of somebody in church, that would get your attention. (laughs) But it was with marvel and wonder, and that's what's gonna happen here with Peter. So he said after the study that he got into the boat, he said, sat down and taught the multitudes. And when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and lay down your net and you'll get a catch. Simon answered and said to him, master, we have toiled all night long and caught nothing. 
Nevertheless, I can just hear the sigh in his voice. Nevertheless, at your word, I'll do it. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their nets began to break. And they signaled to their partner in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. This is the greatest business day in Simon Peter's life. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' feet, saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. All of a sudden, even though Peter has been walking with him, seeing all these miracles, this one was personal. And this one hit him because he realized he was in the presence of the living God. And whenever you are aware of the fact that the Holy Spirit is there, sometimes the Holy Spirit will manifest himself. Notice I said him. He will manifest himself in such a way that his presence is so thick you can cut it with a knife. And whenever that happens, one thing should happen to you. And that's what happened to Peter here. See, Peter became painfully aware of the presence he was in. And all he could say was, Lord, depart from me. You're holy, you did this, this is impossible. And he fell on his face and said, depart from me. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter six for one quick cross-reference to the same thing. Isaiah six, verse one, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. There's one of the orders of angels. Each one had six wings, and with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to the other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. Now what happened to Peter, because he realized he was in God's presence, also happens here to Elijah. He's in God's presence. What's the natural reaction? Woe is me. Woe is me, for I am undone. Peter said he was a sinful man. Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And the natural, I don't believe, humility can be mustered up. I believe if a man is humble, a Christian man is humble, it's because he's got a close walk and he's conscious of the presence of the Lord. And there's no place for taking the glory. The Lord will not share his glory with any man. So if the Lord compliments you because you're gifted or he's given you a gift to use, and sometimes people are very gracious and they say, um, uh, thank you for what you've done. Well, you can say, you're welcome. But in the back of your head, you better be saying, all good and perfect gifts come from above. Praise you, Lord. You get the glory and you only. Good place for an amen. It'll keep you usable. As long as you can keep yourself giving God the glory because you won't share it with anybody else, he'll keep you usable. But, if you allow yourself to start taking the glory and actually think that you had something to to do with the work of the Lord, um, um, many a person's 
ministry has been cut short if they allow that sort of attitude to creep in. All right, let's go back to Luke 5. How much time I got here? A little bit more. Okay. Luke chapter 5. Peter, aware of, of the Lord's presence, said, O Lord, I'm a sinful man. Depart from me. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon and Jesus, said to Simon, do not be afraid, for from now on you're going to be catching men. This is a learning experience. You know how to catch fish? Now we're catching men. So when they had brought their boat to the land, they forsook all and followed him. Do you realize that he followed Jesus on his most successful business day of his life? Think about that. The most successful business day of his life, he gave it all up and followed the Lord. Verse 12. And it happened when he was in a certain city that behold, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus and fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Then he put out his hand and touched him and said, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show himself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as a testimony to them as Moses commanded. Remember Jesus said, don't think I've come to destroy the law. I haven't come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. So leprosy is not curable. um, We can treat it in our time. It wasn't treatable in Jesus' time. Yet in the law, it says this this is what you do in the day of the cleansing of a leper. And it gives instructions. You're, you're, you're to go to the priest, show him that um, you've been healed, and then he'll quarantine you for seven days and look at you again. And um, if uh, the leprosy is still not reappeared, that he will pronounce you clean. That's why the Lord is saying here, go show yourself to the priest, make an offering, because that's what it required, just as Moses commanded. So God is making provision in the Old Testament for the miraculous in the new, particularly this event here. And Naaman, remember the leper that we read about earlier. Then a report went about concerning him all the more and and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities and because I see what we have left here I am not going to rush I'm going to start being a Joshua and stop in the middle of a Bible study (laughs) I hope you heard that I don't know where he is but I hope you heard it (laughs) let's stand and we'll close in prayer we'll pick it up in the middle in chapter 5 Lord thank you for your word tonight um Lord, we want to be aware of your presence. We want to walk in your presence. We don't want to be high-minded or um, big-headed, but to walk humbly before you, knowing that you're the only one worthy to receive any glory. And again, reminded once again that the word of God is about you and not about us. 
is what you've done for us. And um, we are grateful, Lord. But help us be aware of your presence and keep us in that place of humility and walking before you. Make sure we give you the glory when you do our work. Thank you for your word tonight and bless us as we continue to make our way through your scriptures. In Jesus' name I pray, all God's people said, amen. The leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show himself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as a testimony to them as Moses commanded. Remember Jesus said, don't think I've come to destroy the law. I haven't come to destroy it, but to fulfill it. So leprosy is not curable. um, We can treat it in our time. It wasn't treatable in Jesus' time. Yet in the law, it says this this is what you do in the day of the cleansing of a leper. And it gives instructions. You're, you're, you're to go to the priest, show him that um, you've been healed, and then he'll quarantine you for seven days and look at you again. And um, if uh, the leprosy is still not reappeared, that he will pronounce you clean. That's why the Lord is saying here, go show yourself to the priest, make an offering, because that's what it required, just as Moses commanded. So God is making provision in the Old Testament for the miraculous in the new, particularly this event here. And Naaman, remember the leper that we read about earlier. Then a report went about concerning him all the more and and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. And because I see what we have left here, I am not going to rush. I'm going to start being a Joshua and stop in the middle of a Bible study. (laughs) I hope you heard that. I don't know where he is, but I hope you heard it. (laughs) Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. We'll pick it up in the middle in chapter five. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. Um, Lord, we want to be aware of your presence want to walk in your presence we don't want to be high-minded or um, big-headed but to walk humbly before you knowing that you're the only one worthy to receive any glory and again reminded once again that the word of God is about you and not about us it is what you've done for us and um, we are grateful Lord But help us be aware of your presence and keep us in that place of humility and walking before you. Make sure we give you the glory when you do our work. Thank you for your word tonight and bless us as we continue to make our way through your scriptures. In Jesus' name I pray, all God's people said, amen.